I think this is where we who do know the Lord and believe the Bible, this is where we have to intercede uh, for our friends and even people we disagree with in the Israeli government and society, that the nation would turn to God and ultimately would turn to the Son of God, the Messiah that we've waited for. What does a former Israeli prime minister and special forces commander have to say about the goals of the current war that Israel is engaged in? Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And Today, I'm talking with Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem to answer that very question. Joel, welcome. Glad you're with us today. Great to be with you, Carl. And uh, I just have literally walked in the door from coming back. I've been out all day and had the opportunity to do an interview, an exclusive interview uh, with former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Wow. Uh, it will air uh, Saturday night on a special edition of the Rosenberg Report. And uh, it's pretty interesting that the question you asked is exactly the, the premises of why I wanted to talk to former Prime Minister Bennett. He not only was the former Prime Minister, he also previously had been the defense minister for Israel. Um, he served in a number of other cabinet positions, including the, the security cabinet. And as you say, he was uh, a, not only a commando, but a, a major and therefore a commander in Israel's most elite special forces unit known as Sayeret Matkal. So somebody with enormous amounts of experience, Naftali Bennett, not exactly a household world, a word right. in America. He, he only served as prime minister for one year. Uh, we can get into that. But uh, it was a very interesting conversation. I'm sure it was. Now, Joel, his background uh, is fascinating. And like so many of Israel's leaders, they they have a military background. They have a, a obviously a governmental background. And and that where does he see this current moment in Israel's history? And and what does he see as the goals for the conflict and, and where we go from here? Sure. One other thing I should say about him, he uh, is a kippah, I mean, yarmulke wearing uh, Orthodox Jew, modern Orthodox, not ultra Orthodox, but um, it made him the first ever religious Israeli ever to serve as Prime Minister of Israel. That's wow. kind of interesting. Seventy-five years, um, Israelis have tended not to elect uh, religious people. He happened to be part of a coalition that ousted Benjamin Netanyahu and built a new government uh, with Yair Lapid mm -hmm. um, and Benny Gantz and uh, Naftali Bennett, Bennett being asked by the others to serve as prime minister. Because Bennett used to be Netanyahu's chief of staff. Both uh, Netanyahu and Bibi's older brother, Yonatan, Yoni Netanyahu, were both in Sayyarat Matkal a number of years ahead of, of Bennett. So, so Bennett, in many ways, is a protege hmm. of, uh, we might say, in even juggle terms, a disciple mm -hmm. of Netanyahu, but they had a serious falling out a number of years ago. And um, after four rounds of elections, when it got to the fifth, Bennett, uh, who has disagreements with Netanyahu, but hadn't been like the main person trying to drive Bibi out of office, decided that it, it was time for a change. So, but that is the question I asked him. So uh, is what, what do you consider victory? And yeah. so um, former Prime Minister Bennett's uh, main view is that we absolutely have to crush, eradicate, uh, vanquish, he used a number of uh, words, the Hamas terror regime in the Gaza Strip. He said, there's really no way out. We hear all these calls right now, including from the United Nations, demanding or calling for a ceasefire. But he, his right. basic point was, if you call for a ceasefire right now, you're rewarding 
Nazis. You're rewarding yeah. ISIS. You know, nobody called for a ceasefire after, you know, Germany started bombing London right. and, you know, invading and taking over all of France and slaughtering millions of Jews. And so he said, you know, a ceasefire is not a, a helpful concept right now. It really is helping the enemy. But he said, we have to win, obviously, and we will. He said, he's got no doubt. He, he knows the military. He knows the uh, all the variables. And he said, there's no doubt we're going to win and win decisively in Gaza. Mm. But then I pressed him because I said, okay, well, I just spent you know a number of days up in the north, uh, including with a TBN film crew, filming all the you know attacks that are coming from Hezbollah in <laughs> Lebanon against Israeli civilian sites, military sites interviewing people, experts all along that border. I said, can we consider it a victory if we only win in the South? Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I don't That's want to question. share all the things that he said, because I also pressed him on Iran. And he said, I, I want to be careful not to advise the Israeli government. I'm not obviously in the spot that I was. But let me say that when I was the prime minister, we had a plan to do both of those things, to neutralize the Iran nuclear weapons threat and vanquish uh, the Hezbollah threat, whether they, you know, the current government decides to activate those plans. He says, you know, I, I, I can't, obviously I can't tell you, but right. I think because he doesn't know, but I would say reading between the lines, my impression was that he does believe that, that he does believe that Israel will still be in mortal danger. Hmm. But he, you know, in, I also got the sense from him that, you know, he's not itching to go, you know, open up new fronts, but he said, we're already being attacked right. by, we're on, we're being attacked on five different fronts, Carl. Right now we're being attacked by Hamas in Gaza. Mm. We're being attacked by Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Three, we're being attacked by Houthi yeah. terrorists in Yemen. Today they just uh, fired another salvo of missiles. The first time that I'm aware of that Israel ever fired its arrow missile defense system, taking out one of those missiles that was coming into our southern city of Eilat. Huh. And so that's the third. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. So Gaza with Hamas, Lebanon with Hezbollah, Houthis from Yemen. But there's two others. Iranian forces in Syria mm -hmm. are attacking uh, into the Golan Heights and in, in, in the galley. And on top of that, we have terrorist attacks inside the what people call the West Bank, what Israelis call, based on the Bible, Judea and Samaria. And um, wow. so that's a five-front war, Yeah, and that's pretty dangerous. So he thinks this is going to go on quite some time. He doesn't think there's going to be a quick victory, but I guess I would say my sense of it was that he was saying, let's get the Gaza part done, and then we can focus on other sections, parts, unless those others dramatically escalate before we have – time to figure out exactly the right way to approach them. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, several other uh, members of his former prime minister's uh, coalition, Benny Gantz and uh, Yair Lapid. Those individuals are currently in a unity government with Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Well, and Gantz is. Um, okay. And you, you, know, you know Benny Gantz. You've met him yes. when we brought the evangelical delegation here uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but Yair Lapid has stayed in the opposition. I, I know him also, and I think that he should join this government. But right now, he, so I'm, I would say disappointed, not in some, yeah. you know, catastrophic way. But I think right now, all major players should be in a unified government. But he's decided to uh, 
be the voice the of a loyal opposition. Well, is and you know that brings up the question though: is is Israel united on this uh, front and and the goals of the war? I mean, are are you seeing any things that would change that uh, uh, substantially on the ground or anything like that? No, I see a tremendous unity right now, which is. As we've, as we've discussed, it is pretty rare. I would say it's miraculous, certainly a huge answer to prayer. I mean, as we've mentioned before on this podcast over the past month, uh, Hamas accomplished in one day on October 7th what no Israeli could do all year, and that is to unify the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu and, uh, and Benny Gantz were like, you know, they were at loggerheads. Uh, Gantz is the most popular politician in Israel right now. Uh, and if there were an election right now, Benny Gantz would be the prime minister. But he decided to say yes to Netanyahu, who is, who is one of the least popular people in Israel right now. 80% of Israelis believe that he needs to take responsibility, uh, not solely, but but he is sure. the prime He's minister. Government. Mm-hmm. The prime part, you can't just be a minister, you're the prime minister. You're, the buck stops with you. Netanyahu has not spoken on the record about accepting any responsibility, saying those questions of responsibility and, and to blame, all that will happen after we win which I think overall is a fair point. But Bennett today told me, he said, I, I, Naftali Bennett, do bear responsibility. You know, there were things we should have done during my tenure, both as defense minister and as prime minister, that we didn't do. So Gantz, I think, gets a lot of credit for being in the emergency uh, unity government. And, you know, again, I think Lapid should, but because one of the things Lapid Strong is at, his English is very, very good. He's very effective public speaker. He was a television broadcaster hmm. and a newspaper columnist for many years leading up to going into politics. He, he was our foreign minister for a while. He was our prime minister after Naftali Bennett. All that to say, he would be very effective going out and doing a lot of international television and um, and speaking. So anyway, but I'll, I'll say the other part is that Naftali Bennett uh, has sort of come out of um, – Retirement. I mean, he's still young, but I mean, he hasn't been a face on Israeli television or international television for several years since he moved on from the prime ministership uh, role. But 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 the reason I contacted him and said, "Would you be on my TBN show on the Rosenberg Report uh, to speak specifically to evangelicals?" is because I started seeing him on CNN, right, BBC. Sky News, and he has been having rip roaring fights with these commentators who who he claim you know he accuses of being basically mouthpieces for Iran and Hamas, and it really is astonishing. And he has a a new line that's becoming very popular and famous over here, which is "Shame on you." Yeah. And I, I fortunately was not on the receiving end of, of the "Shame <laughs> on you" portion of the program, and I and I joked with him about that. But Bennett, while he was born and raised in Israel, one of his parents is American, and he spent quite a bit of time in America, like Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. Another reason they're so similar, even though now they really don't like each other at all. And so Bennett's English is very, very good. So he's been very effective on fighting back against this extreme media bias. And I was glad to have him on the program. Again, it'll air Saturday night at 930 Eastern on TBN, the Rosenberg Report. And it's a really interesting interview, including um, I asked him about what message do you have for Christians, you know, and, and effectively, why did you why were you willing to come on this program when you have so many other opportunities? I won't give you the answer to okay. that because we still want people to sure to watch. But uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Joel, you, you were speaking with the former prime minister, and um, I'm curious uh, if he feels like a sense of optimism where Israel is right now. There's been so much talk that this is really an existential moment for Israel with so many enemies. You've talked about a five-front war. Um, where, what's his feeling right now about Israel's position, and is it optimistic for the outcomes? He is optimistic. It's a great question, Carl, and I'll get back to the optimism in a moment, but there's no question he believes this is an existential threat. I, I don't think he believes that Hamas in Gaza alone is existential, but he did describe the massacres of more than 1,300 Jews in one day on October 7th as 100 times worse than the Yom Kippur War, where we were blindsided by the invasion of Egypt in the south and Syria in the north 50 years ago, almost to the day. So because he said that that the Yom Kippur War, while we were blindsided, civilians weren't being slaughtered. The military, whose job it is to fight and even die if necessary to protect the country, was doing the fighting and was doing the lion's share of dying. And But he said, you know, to have an invasion where – People are just slaughtered, innocent children, babies. He, he really emphasized, you know, he, the woman whose baby was cut out of her. She's a pregnant woman and they were both That's murdered. Uh, I won't give more grisly details than that. And we're, one of the things we're doing and refraining here is not using the images, uh, many of which I've seen. I haven't seen all of them. All the international press have been invited to watch large, unedited uh, sections of this type of video. Um, I have uh, not been able to either time. I'm not... But some of my colleagues have. Anyway, the point is, Bennett was emphasizing how really Nazi-like this is, how ISIS-like Hamas is, and that Israel was blindsided because it somehow got into its head that Hamas wasn't as dangerous anymore than it purports to be. In its own charter in 1988, Hamas vows to eradicate all Jews in Israel and the Strait of Israel. So that's genocide. So, But being optimistic, yes, he's very optimistic. But he, he's not – he wasn't shy about saying um, it's a long, hard slog ahead of us. And I think this is what he was signaling about – You know, I'm reading between the sure. lines. While he wouldn't answer directly, do you think we have to go to war with Iran and Hezbollah in order to truly make Israel free, right? Prime Minister Netanyahu is calling this the second war of independence. Hmm. So we're yeah. not independent if Iran is at 84% enrichment of uranium and this close – right, to building fully operational nuclear weapons. And we're not free if Hezbollah has 150,000 missiles aimed at our head, just waiting for the day that we, you know, demobilize. So I think what he was saying is this is long and hard because I think he thinks that we do have to go to war with those two. But again, uh, both for strategic and tactical reasons, he didn't want to, I don't think he wanted to say that on the record. And, you know, he's not a a normal analyst. He, He is a former prime minister and a former defense minister. So he knows more than he's allowed to say. But uh, no, he has a real Israeli fighting spirit. And he described, you know, he's got four children and he named them on the show. And he, he said, I'm fighting, Israel's fighting so that all of our children and future grandchildren are free in this country. And, uh, uh, you know, I, so I was very encouraged. I, I have never met Naftali Bennett before. I've met and, of course, interviewed uh, a number of former prime ministers before. Of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Yair Lapid, and uh, Ehud Olmert, the former prime minister who's the only living Israeli prime minister ever to order the Israeli Air Force and Special Forces to destroy a foreign nuclear reactor threat 
that was Syria in 2007. I did a, yeah. a whole we, show on the Rosenberg Report about that. That was, to me, up to yeah. that moment, that was probably the most interesting, one of the most interesting people I've ever met. So I think I've now met and talked to four current or former Israeli prime ministers. But Bennett is very impressive to me. And whether yeah. he has a political future, I don't know, too early to say. But I suspect he may, uh, he may be thinking about getting back in. Well, it's certainly been uh, refreshing to hear him on many of the news outlets really holding holding strong on Israel's justification for uh, doing what it's doing. But we got to take a break right now, Joel. But I want to come back and I want to talk about how the rest of the world is seeing this and what can Israel do in the face of such opinions that are being expressed uh, in very key places. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Our verse of the day today is found in 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And our prayer requests today are, number one, to pray for Israel's leaders to stand strong, and act with wisdom and courage in the face of attacks. And second, to pray for civilians and non-combatants in Gaza and Israel, that they would be protected and not harmed. Well, Joel, we're back. And I, I mean, uh, it's been it's been shocking to me and maybe to many of our listeners to hear so much of what's being uh, said in the world forums out there, the UN uh, nations, uh, uh, we've talked a lot, and I'm sure you want to bring uh, some of this into it. We've talked a lot about the biblical implications for some of the nations that are opposing Israel right now. And, you know, I think it's also really important that we bring out in this podcast that that Israel's not at war with Palestinians. Israel's not at war with some of the regular citizens of Gaza and anywhere in the Arab world. And yet that's what it's being portrayed. So uh, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what's being said out there and and how is Israel uh, responding? Well, I would say that uh, after the first week or maybe even two weeks of global sympathy for Israel, that is really turning. The world is turning against Israel. And I don't have any kinder or gentler way to say that. And it is, it is unnerving. I have to say, um, so the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he's accusing us of war crimes. War crimes? We've just been subjected to the worst war crimes since the Nazis, and he's accusing us of war crimes. When in the UN Charter and all the basic documents of the UN plus the Geneva Convention, we have every right for self-defense. 
And we're not hearing any praise from the UN Secretary General that, wow, you know, while I want to keep Palestinian civilian casualties to a minimum, I'm grateful that the Israeli government has been warning uh, Palestinian civilians in northern Gaza, please move south, because that's what he should be saying. That's what he should be saying. But he's not saying that. He's accusing us of war crimes. And and he's accusing us. uh, Part of the war crimes is that it's it's a population transfer. No, it's not a population transfer to get rid of Palestinians. It's to ask them urgently to move out of the way of Hamas terror bases that are going to be and are being attacked by the Israeli military. So that's compassion on the part of Israel. But you heard none of that from the UN Secretary General. By the way, I, I will tell you, based on a, a, a press briefing just last night, Israel's uh, strategic affairs minister, Ron Dermer, said that he believes that we're now over a million Palestinians in the north have now moved to the safe havens in the south, where food and water and medical supplies are, in fact, uh, being let in through Egypt um, as they're first being checked by Israel to make sure there's no weapons uh, in that. So there were only about 1.1 million estimated Palestinians in the north. So now about a million of them have moved south. So that's a very good thing. And that's why you've seen seen the invasion of the north starting on last Friday night, um, week of Friday night, and um, and while the tempo of military operations, bombings, etc., has intensified over the past week to 10 days. So that's the, that's the UN Secretary General. Then the UN General Assembly. They passed a resolution just a couple of days ago condemning Israel and not condemning Hamas. Unbelievable. Now, this is not only insane, but it's it's just you. There's no other way to say it. it's it's anti-Semitic. There's mm-hmm. a double standard. Let's say when 9/11 happened, right? You were living in California. I was living mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. When the UN came together after mm-hmm. those horrific attacks and the destruction of uh, part of the Pentagon and the two uh, twin towers, the World Trade Center, the UN didn't condemn America. The UN condemned Al Qaeda and actually authorized. United States and our allies to go to war. Mm-hmm. But this is not what is happening. And there's a terrible double standard. It's sickening, actually. It's sickening. Yeah. And I will say, I have to say in all candor, that uh, I was very sad to see every single Arab country that has made peace with Israel and has banned Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood in their countries condemned Israel in that vote. Yeah. They didn't even yeah. abstain. Uh, not, not Egypt, not Jordan, not the United Arab Emirates, not Bahrain. Not Sudan, not Morocco. And uh, uh, that made me sad. Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, it's also chilling to see the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment in in Western Europe and in Russia. I mean, there was a um, I'm sure you can. And and on college campuses in the United States. Well, we'll get there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Where, you know, um, where Jewish students in New York are being told to hide. Yeah. Uh, from mobs outside of the library in the, you know, in New York City. I mean, in, and in Russia, you know, a pogrom basically on the tarmac uh, when a, a flight from Tel Aviv arrived, you know, wanting to, you know, murder Jews. What are we seeing here, Joel? We're seeing a demonic move. A spiritual, spiritual darkness is activating people all over the planet to show their real colors. And those real colors are that they they don't just dislike Jews and Israelis. They hate us and they want to kill us. Mm-hmm. Now, I would encourage my uh, fellow Israelis, don't travel to Russia. Don't travel to Turkey. Don't travel to these countries right now. It's not normal times. Okay, mm-hmm. Russia 
under Vladimir Putin uh, just this past week invited senior Hamas officials and senior Iranian officials to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin. Now, rather than condemning both countries and cutting off relationships with both, Putin embraced them. That tells us something. Again, I don't want to overreach. I, I, I don't live in Area 51. I'm not from Roswell, yeah. New Mexico. All deference to sane people that live <laughs> in Roswell, people in New, New Mexico. Mexico. But That's right. I, I'm not ready to on this podcast to say that Russia has 100% turned against Israel. But when you're embracing and inviting Israel's worst enemies yeah. after they've just committed the worst slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust – I think that Vladimir Putin is dangling on the edge of moving into full hatred and opposition to Israel. And the moment that happens that I can say that confidently, I will say it. It could have been this week. It could have been. But I think we just have to pause and not jump Um, because you could make the case. You could make the case, at least as we record this, that Putin is pressuring Hamas to release the hostages. I've seen no evidence of that. But – Putin could come out looking like a hero while he's got the whole world hating him for invading and yeah. uh, Ukraine and slaughtering Ukrainians. If he got 100, 230 or so Israeli and foreign hostages out of Gaza, um, we would have to say thank you, yeah. even if we disagree with him on everything else. Right. But there's no evidence that that has happened. But again, mm-hmm. there's no reason to lurch. But here's another one real quickly. Turkey. I so was Turkey, just going to bring up Turkey. Yeah, yes. Well, no, what are we to make of that? What are we to make of Turkey, a NATO ally, uh, ostensibly, you know, a place where we should be able to count on Turkey's support for, you know, our military engagements. And yet their their leader has been vocal against Israel. Yeah. Uh, Recep Erdogan, who I spent a lot of time talking about in my book, Enemies and Allies, as as an enemy, not an ally. But there is no actual mechanism within the NATO alliance to remove a NATO member. It never, no one contemplated a NATO member turning against NATO mm-hmm. or one of NATO's closest allies, which would be Israel, or the United States, which is the closest ally of Israel. So, so Erdogan, Recep uh, Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, uh, who really sees himself as the sultan of radical Sunni Islamism, he sees this as an opportunity. He canceled his upcoming trip to visit Israel, which had been part of a Turkish-Israeli rapprochement, which Mm -hmm. seemed to be confusing given what we know about Erdogan. Why is he trying to normalize his relations with Israel? I I said on many broadcasts, interviews, and maybe on this podcast that I I don't buy it. And now Erdogan has revealed himself. But it's more than that. It's not just that he canceled his trip to Israel. It's that he he specifically said that Hamas are not terrorists. They're liberators. Yeah. Liberators of what? Uh, as we've discussed on this podcast, Israel liberated the Gaza Strip in 2005. We pulled all Israeli soldiers and all Israeli civilians out of Gaza and gave them the keys to the kingdom. And mm. uh, they could have had a Palestinian paradise 20-some years later but they decided to make it a base camp for Nazi ISIS-like terror. So what needs to be liberated? Well, obviously, Erdogan means all of what he calls Palestine, what the Bible calls the land of Israel. So this is horrible. And on top of that, Erdogan threatened to mobilize the Turkish military and send it to Gaza to fight Israel. And he was speaking to a crowd of millions of Turks who were demanding just that. Now, 
you know, so we're, we're talking about the Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks, yeah. who are the three prime central players in the Ezekiel 38, 39 dynamic. Exactly. But are we in that dynamic, meaning literally that the, the prophecy is about to set into motion, or are just the players showing which side they're on? That's certainly yeah. true. And that Israel is, in fact, going to win a massive and decisive victory and that the war of Gog and Magog will happen years or maybe even decades later, in which maybe Putin, Erdogan, and the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khamenei, maybe they're not even alive at that point. And the hmm. other players have emerged. I don't know. Carl, right. if I knew, I would right. tell you. Um, yes. If you knew, I think you'd tell me. So, <laughs> But no. these are very, very dangerous I, uh, developments. Yeah worse than anything that I've ever seen in the 20 some years that I've been writing and speaking 25 years, almost uh, about Ezekiel 38 and 39. I've never seen it this bad. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly concur with that, Joel. And I've been reading as well. I'm sure you have, you know, some of the concerns in the U S government are for this uh, wider war, you know, maybe, maybe regional, maybe even global. You got to answer the question and we've got to ask the question, where does the United States fit in in all of this? I mean, and what's our position now and and are we doing enough? Yeah, I would break that into several pieces. It's a great question with uh, layered answers. Uh, answer number one is, I think, to take all partisanship aside. And of course, Joshua Fund is not a partisan organization. So just strictly analytical. President Biden has has done a very good job coming to Israel, as we've discussed on this podcast during a hot war, no American president has ever done that, including Donald Trump, who I have said to Donald Trump himself personally in the Oval Office, you're the most pro-Israel president America has ever had. And that remains true, but but he never came to here during a war. So Biden gets credit for that. Biden has sent, uh, to my count, more than 50 huge U.S. Air Force cargo planes filled with ammunition and uh, jeeps and other supplies and arms to, you know, backfill what we're losing in these battles so far. Uh, So that's been encouraging. And Biden vetoed a draft resolution that was emerging that was even worse than this one at the UN. So that was good. And one other thing that he's done, well, two other things, very positive. Biden has ordered uh, three aircraft carrier strike groups into the region. Two have come into the eastern Mediterranean, so they're pretty much hovering, as it were, uh, uh, operating offshore from Israel and Lebanon. So that's a signal for Hezbollah and Iran, don't escalate this. Now, they are escalating at the border, but we haven't seen the full, you know, know, Hezbollah hasn't fired 150,000 missiles at us. So that's good so far. But the other carrier strike group, uh, the USS Roosevelt, was sent to the Persian Gulf. So that puts three aircraft carrier strike groups uh, in striking position against Iran and its main terror proxy force, Hezbollah. That's important and really can't be underestimated. You know, is Biden ready to really go to war with either Mm -hmm. or both of those entities? We'll see. But, you know, his famous line, historically, Biden's famous line is, superpowers don't bluff. And when I interviewed uh, his top Israel expert uh, a few few weeks ago on the Rosenberg Report, a friend of mine, um, Ambassador Tom Nides, who now stepped down from the ambassador role just before this war as it happens. But he said to me, and he stressed this point on the program, on the Rosenberg Report, that Biden always says uh, superpowers don't bluff. So this will be tested 
But Mm -hmm. it has already been tested in that Iranian forces, particularly the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, known as the IRGC, Iran's got forces in Syria. And uh, the Iranians have attacked U.S. forces. That's right. We don't have many in the region right now, ground forces, but we do have some in eastern Syria and some in eastern Iraq. And the IRGC has attacked both sets. There have been more than 20 casualties. Fortunately, not a single American has died as of yet, but injuries. And so Biden ordered airstrikes against these Iranian positions uh, just a couple of days ago. Was it enough? I don't know. But it's the first time that the Biden administration, President Biden, has ordered attacks against Iranian positions since this war began. So let me summarize by saying I think that Biden really does love Israel, but he's, as I've said on this program before, I think he's somewhat bipolar, Mm. meaning on the one hand, he's been trying to give a lot of money, billions and billions and billions of dollars to the Iranian regime, trying to buy their quiet and buy their disengagement from a nuclear weapons pursuit. It hasn't worked. That hasn't worked. And, but he also does love Israel. And I think he's being drawn away from Iran and closer to his core love for Israel because he saw the slaughter. And at the same time, Russia has been an ally of Iran, right, formally, but it's also been friendly, complicated, but friendly with Israel and particularly with Prime Minister Netanyahu. But I think what's happening is Russia's being pulled away from Israel towards Iran. And I think what I know, I mean, I'm certain of it, Netanyahu is saying behind closed doors, President Biden, you tried everything you could do. Nobody could have asked for more. I didn't agree with you, but you tried to get Iran to give up its genocidal ambitions, but it hasn't. And now we need you to come 100% with us. And I think the Iranian regime is telling Putin, look, you try to be nice to those Jews, to those Zionists, but they're horrible. And it's time for you to come with us. And that is very dangerous And we haven't even talked about the possibility of China invading Taiwan while all this mess is happening in Ukraine and here. So this could go to World War III so quickly, maybe we're in it already. And and the question mark uh, of history is always, you don't know what history is until after it's happened. And uh, unfortunately, you know, many people are feeling like the U.S.'s resolve in this question is being eroded. And I know we're going to do a podcast on this uh, extensively, being eroded by media and by conversation, uh, putting Israel into that uh, villain position versus uh you know, seeing Israel for the justification for its actions against yeah. Hamas. We, and yeah. we will, I'm, I'm looking for, I mean, we have to do that next podcast, but I will just say in keeping with this, again, trying to be fair, I, I, I need to be fair by saying uh, President Biden has said several things publicly that are very important for Israel right now. Um, and we've talked about this, but just to re, re, un, you know, underscore it, when Hamas accused Israel of bombing a hospital in Gaza a couple weeks ago, Israel very quickly compiled all the video evidence and intercept between two Hamas people who admitted that they and their team had done it. And not Israel got the information very quickly out to the international media, but also to the president who was on his way here that night. Yeah. And when he was here, President Biden said that bombing of that hospital wasn't Israel. It was mm-hmm. Uh, Hamas. It was the other team, as he put it. The other team. That was yeah. important for the president of the United States to say And especially because the 
international left-wing media listens much more carefully to a Democratic left-wing president than they would to an Israeli right-wing prime minister or Mm -hmm. to an American right-wing conservative president like President Trump. So I think President Biden's words carried a lot of weight at that time. And there's one other he just said the other day, which was he was being asked about all the, uh, the, the deaths in Gaza on the Palestinian side. And he said, look, uh, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically was saying that he has compassion for those Palestinian civilians and he's and he is encouraging Israel to be careful. And Israel is. But he said, I don't accept at face value the numbers that the Hamas terrorists are putting out. And, and, he, and he basically said no journalist should believe those numbers. There's certainly casualties. There's no question about that. Deaths and, and injuries. But to accept propaganda from the Nazis is like saying, taking a press release from Joseph Goebbels and going, well, okay, this must be the truth when you know it's not. So look, it's important. There are some listeners and viewers who are going, wow, I thought Joel was one of us, but he's gone to the dark side. He's getting all soft (laughs) on Biden and the Democrats. Look, you know, I don't accept that. We need a bipartisan alliance in the United States on behalf of Israel. And I've been very outspoken, uh, both on all Israel news and on many interviews, occasionally on this, although that's not our main point here. When Biden has been wrong, I'll say it. And Biden has been wrong on the Iran stuff, 100% wrong. But if he does things that are right, a Christian is supposed to say, well, give credit where credit is due. The Bible says give honor where honor is due. Now, that doesn't mean I support Biden on his abortion position or his homosexual marriage position, or his transgender positions, or most other positions. But if he's doing the right thing, when he's doing the right thing on the Israel issue and the Middle East issue, I'm going to give him credit. And if you don't like it, go find another podcast. Yeah. Well, hopefully people get that. Uh, uh, or change your own opinion and say, all right, that's fair. I don't support Biden. Exactly. But when he does something right, all right, that's Joel's at least being honest. He's yeah. calling the balls and strikes the way they really are. Well, and that's what that I would so be the appreciate. better response. But uh, okay. <laughs> well, it is uh, it is that time of year for balls and strikes at the World Series. But I, I will say, Joel, it's uh, it, it's always refreshing to hear uh, you analyze these things this way because, as you just said, you know, there's there's every opportunity for us to call the the shots as they as you see them as they really are. And uh, and to to give honor where honor is due, and to to call out shame when shame needs to be spread in that direction. Joel, I, I just have one other question. I think uh, our listeners would also really like to be constantly reminded: what can we be praying for right now? Where should our prayers go in this moment? Well, the number one thing on my heart right now is for the full and unconditional release and rescue of these Israeli and foreign hostages. There are at least ten Americans being held uh, by Hamas right now. And there are a number from other nationalities. Uh, but there's, as you and I record this, the number is approximately, or, or I believe it's confirmed at 230. But the number has been climbing. Yeah. And four hostages have been released. And one hostage was rescued by Israeli special forces uh, within the 24 hours right before you and I recorded this. So that's been a success. So my heart is going out first and foremost to those folks and to their families and to their friends that they have peace that, that defies comprehension, that, that we just intercede and God will give them peace. They may, most of them probably don't know God personally through his son, Jesus, the Messiah, but 
they're scared. They're in bad physical condition. We no, no Red Cross has been able to officially has been able to go visit them. So this is very, very dangerous, very, very bad. And that's my first prayer. Uh, so say my second prayer is for the Israeli soldiers that are in harm's way right now, fighting mm-hmm. to liberate the Palestinian people as well as the Israelis from this scourge of evil known as Hamas. Obviously, for the Israeli leaders too, and obviously for civilians on both sides that are that are suffering and are caught in a crossfire. Ultimately, um, my big prayer right now is praying that the Israeli government, including the Prime Minister, would call for a national day of prayer and fasting. I, I've I've been struck, Carl, that hmm. we're a month in since the horrific uh, massacre began on October seventh, and no Israeli leader mainly the prime minister has, has decided to call for a national day of prayer and fasting. But this is what we see in the Bible. Um, This is what uh, Solomon does. This is what Jehoshaphat famously does. Maybe we can do a program on some of the times where Israeli kings uh, and Judean kings in that day uh, said, look, we're facing a horrible threat. King Jehoshaphat, uh, whose name means God is judge. um, He, he sees a mass army coming and he's terrified. He's, he, he literally does. He says, I, God, I don't know what to do, but you do give us yeah. wisdom, give us courage. And of course, in that passage, God tells him to get the army ready, but to send out the worship teams ahead of the army. And God creates an environment where uh, basically the enemy turns on itself and destroys itself because they think armies are coming from all these different directions. God creates a confusion. And in the end, Israel's army doesn't have to fight at all. After the worship teams go forward, then they sort of head into battle. And when they get there, everybody's dead. They, yeah. The enemy turned on itself. Now, I'm just saying, is that a coincidence? No. <laughs> but is there any Israeli leader calling on the God of Israel to, you know, we're going to humble ourselves. We're going to repent. I mean, this goes right to Second Chronicles 7.14. Right. And the setup is Solomon saying, well, if we get off course, if we stop obeying you, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, but encourage people to look at Second uh, Chronicles six and seven. But King Solomon is laying out a whole list of scenarios by which Israel could drift away. And therefore, God decides to get our attention by allowing either mm-hmm. terrible disease, a pandemic to come along. He would call it pestilence uh, or an army or a famine or some other plague. And when these things happen, Lord, he says, if we humble ourselves and pray and ask you to help us, will you please commit to helping us? And the Lord's response is this famous passage in Second Chronicles 7.14. Well, if my people, Israel, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and repent of their sins and uh, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins mm-hmm. and I will heal their land. That is entirely what we need right now, but our government isn't doing that. So I think that's a problem. Yeah, I don't want to be hypercritical. I just want to say, I think this is where we who do know the Lord and believe the Bible, this is where we have to intercede yeah. uh, for our friends and even people we disagree with in the Israeli government and society, yeah. that the nation would turn to God and ultimately would turn to the Son of God the Messiah that we've waited for, uh, Yeshua, HaMashiach, Hamashiach. Jesus, the Messiah, 
who is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. And he wept over Jerusalem. I think he's weeping over Jerusalem and Gaza now because he sees two lost people in this war. It doesn't mean they're equal. People who burn babies and behead mothers and children and that's evil and it must be dealt with. And God has given a command to governments to, to, to fight, to protect their people and to bring justice. So, but, but is Jesus weeping over Israelis who are in this and not turning to him? Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. And is he weep, is Jesus weeping over Palestinians who supported this genocidal regime? Now maybe they're having second thoughts, but they're stuck. Mm-hmm. They're trapped and they're suffering. And he weeps for them and he wants both teams to humble themselves and plead for him to rescue them. And this is my, yeah. my main prayer. All those are important, the others, but ultimately this is what is needed most of all. Wow. Well, Joel, that is, uh, that's powerful. And uh, we have to leave it there because of time, but I, I have to say it's so, it's part of the ministry of the Joshua Fund to, to really bring this sort of education to our listeners. And I'm so grateful that you are able to connect all of these dots from the, the geopolitical to the prophetic, all the way to what we can be doing now uh, biblically to be praying for Israel. And who knows, maybe God uh, would have us, those listeners to this podcast and those of us to be sort of that that virtual worship teams going forward and praying on Israel's behalf. So uh, thank you very much. And Joel, appreciate so much of your uh, your time on this podcast. My honor. Thank you, Carl, for your love and your heart. And um for how all you're doing to keep the Joshua Fund team focused on its its central mission. And uh, I can report to you briefly, but your team here on the ground here in Israel is working around the clock to care for people, deliver uh, food and, and uh, water and other supplies in, in harm's way with rockets blowing up over their heads. It's pretty impressive to watch and, and be part of. And um, I just want our viewers and listeners to know that the, the, the money that you're donating to the Joshua Fund is being put to really good use right now. And some of that's just not just the, the, the delivery. What we're every The testimony we're hearing of every person on the staff, and of course, uh, Lynn, who's not technically on the staff, but on the board, but they just keep coming back and saying, you cannot believe how appreciative people mm-hmm. are. It's not just the stuff, of course. It's that you came into harm's way to sit with me and pray with me and just hold my hand and even hug me and let me cry with you. That means so much to me. Jews don't expect that from anybody. And they don't expect it from evangelicals. Um, and it's touching people and um, it's touching me. Yeah. Well, that's the heart and soul of the Joshua Fund. And uh, and God bless you and Lynn as you guys continue to pray and work and, and live there in Jerusalem. So, And to our listeners, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. And if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn more about what Joel was just talking about, the healing work that we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and the neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in what we're doing. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on this podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter.
There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful devotional and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.